All right, bud, thank you very much. I am Chris Cuomo. Welcome to Primetime. While the debate rages on about who wants to lead on the Democratic side, tonight I want to show you what is not getting the attention it should. I'm going to bring you a special report on the ongoing crisis in the Bahamas. Here's the reality. We don't know way too much about the situation, especially the missing, the dead, the level of destruction and loss. You will see when we take you to the ground, it's a function of two things, the scale of the loss and the inadequacy of the ability and the resources to respond. Now we hear Dorian battered islands could be hit by another tropical system soon. We'll show you the current path and expectation. We also have the president's top immigration official here, Ken Cuccinelli. We're going to ask him why the administration's making it so hard for Bahamians to seek refuge here. Now, more so than before the storm. Why? And two titans doing remarkable work to help hurricane victims join us. Chef Jose Andres is literally feeding the Bahamas. And NBA all-star Carmelo Anthony is here with an important reminder. Don't forget Puerto Rico. What do you say? Let's get after it. Now, this is the interesting part about the missing situation. The number is down from like 2,500 to now 1,300 listed as missing about two weeks after the most powerful storm in Bahamas history. But we know that that number is soft because they haven't even been able to search all these places. And they know that for sure there are thousands, many thousands living with nothing and many need to get out of there at least for a while. However, One escape hatch from the catastrophe seems to be closing. CBP here in the U.S. says those trying to enter the U.S. are being reviewed on a case-by-case basis. And we are told about 3,900 evacuees have been processed through Florida. But then the president made this unproven claim that smacked of bad hombres about drug dealers in the Bahamas trying to get in. Now access has been denied. And the policy is supposedly, unless you have a visa or documentation that is almost impossible to organize in this chaos, you can't get in. I don't want to allow people that weren't supposed to be in the Bahamas to come in to the United States, including some very bad people and some very bad gang members and some very, very bad drug dealers. So we are going to be very, very strong in that. Let's bring in his acting U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services Director, Ken Cuccinelli. Ken, thank you for joining us. Good to be with you, Chris. Now, as you know, I got good sources at CBP. I got good sources at DHS. Nobody can put meat on the bones of that allegation. They pushed back on me and said, we didn't close the door. We're going to let people in. We're figuring it out. Uh, Don't say that it's over. But nobody could back up the president's claim he just made about what this risky population is. And the only one we know of being denied was not a group of drug dealers. They were mostly people with their kids trying to get in. Yeah, I don't I don't have anything to add to the subject. Obviously, we always want to be vetting people, no matter what the circumstances. Um, The president's describing people who aren't from the Bahamas coming through the Bahamas, um, which is something that we are on watch for. Um, and have added vetting resources over the years, particularly during the Trump administration. That's been a major priority for him, whether well, what it's is the proof of what else. he alleged? So we continue it, to do that. It changed the policy, Ken. I, I'm not Chris, saying I, that I don't have any other. No, but you must, on because that, you are in so. a position of authority now. So you've got to do one of two things. 
You got to say, so here, Chris, here's the proof or <laughs> what two. What other answers must I have? Well, no, no, no. Well, you got to do one of two things, Ken. You either have to say the president meant this and here's the basis or I don't know why he said that. It is not something that I can prove. Yeah, I just told you that as acting director of USCIS, I don't have any additional information on that. I think that answers the question. And I no, never. No, it doesn't. Can you confirm what, what he said? Thinks. Can you? I don't care. It's not about why he said no, it. No, I don't. It's I don't have I don't have information on it, so no, I cannot confirm. But that. then, where did he get it from? That they're drug I can dealers trying to get we're in? Vetting, that we're vetting all these folks. Have you vetted a single case of I, drug I dealers trying to sneak in? Well, you're in charge of it. <clears throat> uh, I can't speak. I, I can tell you, we vet all of the folks. Have you caught a single drug dealer trying to come in? Short notice, and we do this on short notice. It makes it a lot more difficult. Have you caught have a single that, drug Chris. dealer? Yes, you, you do. Because I've heard the answer is zero from five different sources. Well, that's great. Well, you didn't tell me you were going to ask that question before I got on here. And I'm sitting here with no notes. So I don't know the answer to that question. You didn't think I was going to ask you about your job of screening people to come to the country? Chris, do you think I screen all nine million visas that we handle every year? I don't. No, but I think Uh, that if you had proof that the president was right, you'd be giving it to me right now, Ken. I think if you had proof he was right, yeah, you would have well, offered it up right up maybe, at the top of the show. Chris, maybe you should, maybe instead of sandbagging me, you should try to give a little heads up on what you'd like to actually have hold a on, constructive on, conversation Ken. about. Come because on, I have frequently had constructive conversations Ken. with you. Ken. But, uh, you know, here we are talking about the Bahamas, and you want to ask me about something, uh, you know, about one quote from the president. Yeah, I do. Ken, come on, brother. Don't paint me like that. You know I'm not a sandbagger. There's nothing sneaky about me. I'm painfully obvious. You know the president said this today. You you know it's indefensible. I just don't understand why you guys just and can't I don't help him correct the behavior. My day, and I don't change my day based on every quote that other people hear from the president. I do not follow Fearful. around everything the president says all day. I don't even follow his tweets all day. Good for Chris. you. It'll keep I you sane. But it day. affects your policy. And I'm wondering Saner. why won't you give the Bahamians TPS? Temporary protected status. Republicans and Democrats have done it for situations sure. just like this. Yes, we we used to do that when the courts obeyed the law written in the statute that Congress passed that says they wouldn't review when we closed those. So when the executive branch tried to end some previous TPSs, some of them now, Chris, over 20 years old, 20 years old. The oldest one is for a hurricane, if I remember correctly, in 1998. And because the courts are breaking the law by not obeying what Congress wrote, they've essentially taken that tool away from us. But we are using other forms of humanitarian relief. In your intro, you mentioned case-by-case consideration by Customs Border Protection. What that refers to is humanitarian parole, which can be utilized in situations like this. In fact, that is what CBP is frequently using in this situation. And we've also brought medical cases to this country. There's an awful lot of humanitarian relief going on being provided by the U.S. government. They're being told they have to have documentation here. They're being told now they need documentation that is more fulsome than what they needed even before the storm. If anything, you think there'd be leniency after a storm like this. Why would you make it harder to get in? Yeah. No, we, we, we don't make it harder. We use the same standards. And when CBP processes people uh, at a point of entry, they do need proof of identity. They need to know who people sure. are. They're asking so for they more than that. they can even decide whether They're asking for proof of land ownership, bills, a visa. 
Who's going to organize that stuff when your house was just destroyed? Yeah, what they might ask for, Chris, is proof of address, um, not no, not land ownership, except insofar as it helps to prove identity. Identity is the key. Um, proof when you're of income, vetting property ownership. I'm just letting you know, even though I mean this this is your area of expertise. Proof of ownership, proof of income, utility bills. My house was just blown up. How am I going to get these kinds of this kinds of paperwork? You're supposed to make it easier right now and vet them. That's what TPS is about. No, TPS is temporary protected status for people who are already here. It doesn't have to do with uh, people coming in. That's the humanitarian parole that I mentioned that CBP is, in fact, using. And let's keep in mind that most of the Bahamas is still in perfectly good shape. The two big northern islands uh, were the ones that got hammered here. And so we're also working with the Bahamian government about uh, taking care of folks in the home islands where they live I have as heard well. good reports so, about the, Coast the United States doing great being job responsive. Doing the Coast too. Guard, I've heard about, and other ancillary organizations are helping. They've been rock stars. Uh, but it seems yep. like the president has extended his bad hombres, brown menace mentality to the Bahamas, and it changed the course of CBP and DHS, that now... They were open to helping people and no, getting them no. in, and now it's slowed I, down and the requirements Chris, are up. I think you, uh, I think you misunderstand that. The, the course has not changed. The number you cited, the most updated number, that 3,900 folks from the Bahamas mm-hmm. here, that is almost 1,000 more than, say, 36 hours ago. So th- this process is continuing. Um, there, are, there are requirements, vetting requirements, but Bahamians are still coming into this country Uh, appropriately vetted and legally, but they're still coming in. That has not stopped, which you said earlier. That's just not accurate, Chris. It has not stopped. People were were kicked off a boat. Uh, They were told that they didn't need a visa to get in. They just needed proof of identification in their criminal record. They had that with them. And then CBP said that was not enough. Then Mark Morgan was asked at CBP, and he said, listen, uh, we're going to relax the standards in situations like this. That's not unusual. Republicans and Democrats have done it. Then after the president said what he said, DHS put out a different statement saying, no, 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 uh, you need visas. You need to have more specific documentation. And that's where we got this checklist from. So something changed. But let me ask you about something else that changed while I have you. The asylum ruling from the Supreme Court, uh, just for people who are following at home, obviously, you know it. You're a very skilled lawyer. Um, it basically says The government has the right to put into play its new asylum policy about the rules for asylum, which essentially says you can't forum shop. You have to go to the first place you can to seek protection. You can't forum shop and come to the United States unless you're denied access somewhere else. Um, And you can do that while the case is being appealed. What I don't understand is what we heard in the dissent of that case. Where is the safe place for these people to go when they're fleeing from Central America between there and here? Well, uh, every first of all, people are coming from all over the world through Mexico and through the through Central America um, and that it has become sort of an avenue uh, of access. The southern border, we're we're catching people crossing illegally from countries all over the world. The, The greatest numbers, as you note, Chris, are from straight south of us. Mexico is still very, very number one on the list. Well, and the and Central then, America uh, Central as a group, America though, is bigger well. now. Central America as a grouping 
is bigger yeah. now, the triangle countries. If you and where are they supposed all, to go? If you people? combine them all, they've gotten much bigger. Right, like, I guess one Mexico. One of the countries they pass through first. Mexico. They, one of the countries they pass through first. And let's keep in mind, well, if you're in Guatemala, Mexico right. is the only country you pass through. Um, it's different for Honduras and El Salvador, of course, but, uh, and points farther south. But look, Chris, when we see our credible fear numbers, the, the credible fear interviews where we have very little um, pushback and very little uh, negative screening, 80% coming through, and yet only 10, 12, 15% of those folks actually ultimately qualify, mm -hmm. the, the 70 or 80% of people in between those two, 60 to 70% of people in between those two are clogging a pipeline that keeps legitimate asylum seekers from being able to get through uh, our humanitarian offerings. So why don't we offerings. extend and our, we are 330,000 cases. We, we're adding this calendar year, Chris, since I've uh, started the leadership at USCIS, we will add 50% more asylum officers this year. We are growing that capacity, but where we have a true backlog that is very large, 335,000 cases, is in the asylum space. And a lot of it has grown out of this crisis at the southern border, where we have a lot of people claiming asylum who have no persecution, no threats. There are only a limited number of governments in the Western Hemisphere any longer that, that pose these kinds of threats. And yet many people realize that what they could do, they hopefully can't any longer, was swamp our southern border. So, so many of them got released in the interior, right. and many of those just don't show up when they have but court Ken, dates why is the because best their result? goal was just to get caught and released. But why is the best way to do it, to stop the U.S. policy of, if you get here, we'll vet your claim? Um, you know, Mexico... You know about the reports that are coming out of Tijuana and other places as people start filling them up as they wait for entry into the U.S. The crime is on the way up. The violence is on the way up. That is a dangerous place and it's getting more dangerous for people. Why take a risk when we could just expand capacity? Why take a risk with these people getting hurt or sending Chris, people back who are legitimate Chris, asylum we'd love to. We'd love to expand capacity. You touch on a really important point. Congress refuses to do that. All they do is complain about the crowding. They can fix it, and they've done it. We know they can do it because in early June, you'll remember that supplemental appropriation sure. that got passed by Congress to help children, yep. which we had been, the administration had been begging them for that for months. And once when they the got administration done wasn't it was saying crisis, that it liked the policy of harshness on kids because it worked, I had that memo. It was before your time, uh, but they were plenty happy to be using yeah. that, that method. Yeah, nobody wants children in inappropriate facilities. And the Border Patrol facilities were made for single adult males, primarily to be you. repatriated quickly back to Mexico. And when we got enough money from Congress, in one month, Chris, in one month, and I know you've been to the border and studied this, in one month, we got those kids into child-appropriate facilities. We got all of the overcrowding related to children down, gone, and kids were out of Border Patrol facilities in under no, three days matters. regularly the when they matters, finally took the experts' I got advice. I got, listen, what I'm and saying is this. that's the answer with respect to the other I, I'm with you. I'm just saying I don't think you have to change the rules if you can expand capacity. And I know the money matters, and I am not questioning the motivations of the men and women who do the job on the border. I've seen it firsthand. They're bad apples in every bunch, but those are good men and women doing a good job. And, Ken, I hope you know, sandbagging ain't me. I'm just asking you about what's obvious, as always, and you're always welcome.
Hey, Chris, I love to answer your questions. You know that. I love to have the debate. But uh, if, if, I, if I have better specifics coming in, I'll prepare. I do my homework. Listen, you're a smart guy. I respect you. I want you on the show. You find out whatever you want to find out about it. You get the information. You got a case to make. Your invitation is open. You come right back. All right? Good to be with you, Chris. Absolutely. Absolutely. Listen, we don't need animosity. You got to disagree with decency. I don't sandbag anybody ever. I am painfully obvious. The president said it. The policy seemed to change. So I ask. Even more concerning news. Tonight, a tropical storm warning is in effect tonight for some of the islands already crushed by Dorian. Things may only get worse. Let me show you how bad it is now. We're going to go live to the Bahamas when our special report continues. Sad to say, but the people of the Bahamas are back on alert tonight as a potential tropical storm threatens to strike the very same areas already devastated by Dorian. It's been you know, about two weeks since that Category 5 landed. Efforts are largely turning to recovery. The death toll stands at 50, but there's so much that's unknown. CNN's Paula Newton is joining us live out of Nassau tonight with the reality there. We're going to talk to her in a moment. Here's what she's finding. Its ferocity was so vicious, survivors describe a storm that seemed to want to wipe them out. The words can't describe it. I don't wish it on nobody. Still stunned at their own survival, the aftermath has been crippling. Nearly one in five Bahamians are now homeless. More than 2,100 are in shelters and at least hundreds more are taken in by family, friends, even strangers. The price tag already at a staggering $8 billion and counting. And while the winds have calmed, the sense of urgency hasn't. The need to feed, shelter and clothe so many for months, maybe years, while trying to cope with finding and identifying the hundreds still missing. And many who survived are struggling with traumatic experiences. During the storm, thousands scrambled from room to room, house to house, buildings crumbling or flooding around them with alarming speed. And the same boat here was just as high as the roof. It started to come onto the, onto the roof with me as I was holding on for their life. Hurricane Dorian was stronger than predicted. It lasted longer than predicted. It lingered and lashed out with gusts that resembled thousands of terrifying tornadoes as the storm ground to a halt, grinding across the islands. Sitting in the living room, and all of a sudden the roof did a, it just came off. Hundreds lost track of not just belongings, but each other. Relief overwhelmed reunions. Others, though, still days after the storm, were desperate for proof of life. This woman frantic to find her cousin. I hope they find him. I hope so. You just have a son. You don't even know the baby face yet. I hope they find him. I hope so. Others know exactly what happened to loved ones. They watch and wait the grim search for bodies, knowing some victims were swept out to sea. The evacuations are now nearly complete. On the minds of most, how do you even begin to rebuild? We can do it alone. We need help. Lots of help. Lots of help. It's going to be monetary help. It's going to be, I mean, just, uh, you don't even know where to start. Dorian shattered lives here, but also expectations about how hurricanes behave and what survival looks like 
after they've passed. All right, Paul is joining us now from Nassau. Nassau, one of the places that was basically spared, um, but we needed as a home base to get to these other areas. So on top of everything that they're enduring and the unknown, another storm brewing. How are people taking that information and what is the rate of new information there? Uh, here's the issue, Chris. These people have been traumatized by the storm. Remember, they didn't have communication during the first storm about how long it was going to last. And now they see it coming their way. And they're going to wonder, obviously, traumatized, how hard is this going to hit? Look, it is going to hit those affected areas again. Many people, thankfully, have already been evacuated. It's going to be a shelter-in-place event. Chris, the problem is people have tarps over the heads, the ones that decided uh, to live there. And obviously there's a lot of debris that is also going to be an issue and it's going to be a danger, not to mention groundwater contamination. And this storm, this new approaching storm, isn't going to help. The other urgent issue, of course, though, Chris, is what do you do when you're here in Nassau? And that's one thing that's really starting to wear on people who survived one of the strongest storms on Earth already. Uh, And Paula, I want to give you some thanks. You're reporting on the ground about what people are encountering when they're trying to leave, what documents they're being asked to have, what they're being told they need, and that it's more stringent than it was even before the storm. I was using that reporting basis as part of the argumentation against uh, the administration official we had on. So thank you for giving us the word from the ground so we can test power appropriately. Good luck to you and the team down there. Okay. All right. So what are officials doing to keep disease from spreading on the islands. That's a big thing that we don't cover a lot. Like the storm is over. That's when the disease begins, the pooling water, all the waste from the sewage. How is that going? We're gonna turn to the Bahamas Minister of Health for a live update next. All right, so for those who are still trying to make do in the Bahamas or are looking to return to some of the hardest hit areas there, there's another threat. Uh, You know, your house may be gone. There's no infrastructure, but Those pools of water, the sewage, the debris, the decay, all of that can lead to disease. Some lack access to toilets, clean water, medical care. Some hospitals and clinics lack personnel. They lack personnel and needed supplies. So let's bring in Dr. Dwayne Sands. He's the health minister of the Bahamas. Thank you, doctor, for joining us. Good evening. It's a pleasure to be with you. And uh, thank thank God I find you well uh, on this phone call. And I know a lot of People uh, in your care are not similarly situated. People often neglect the aftermath effects of waterborne disease and problems with sanitation. What are you finding? Well, thankfully, we were somewhat proactive in recognizing that this was going to be a challenge. And so we have literally sent out a small army of public health officials, some from the Bahamas, but many from the Pan-American Health Organization. So they have descended into the Bahamas, and in particular into Abaco, Grand Bahama, and also New Providence of Nassau, to deal aggressively with the challenges of waterborne, foodborne diseases, and the infectious challenges that typically arise in the second phase after a storm. So how do you... believe? Oh, go ahead, doctor, please. We we have now set up outposts in virtually every settlement in Abaco and all of the inhabitable settlements in Grand Bahama so that in terms of the acute care and primary care facilities, for the most part, they are now up and running. 
Well, that's good news. How do you deal um, with these high numbers of uh, at least temporarily homeless? I mean, there's uh, about 70,000 homes have been taken out uh, based on uh, what they know from the obvious areas, not so much uh, a reckoning of the outer settlements uh, yet. And you have uh, a certain percentage that have nowhere to be at all. How do you accommodate now? What do you need? So uh, your numbers, uh, we have 70,000, give or take, in both Abaco and Grand Bahama. So in terms of the number of homes lost, it's still a very large number. Uh, that said, what we have done uh, for those homes that are habitable, people have remained in them, but a number of people have evacuated. Some 8,000 persons have been evacuated from both islands. And then many people are in shelters. We have set up public health and primary care facilities outside every shelter. And we have recognized that many people simply don't have the ability to get to health care. And so we've had to take health care to them. Right. Uh, the biggest concern, doctor, now is going to be how many people were lost. Uh, the number of missing has come down. That's good. Um, but the idea of there only being 50 lost, I mean, I, I hope that that's the number. I hope not one more is added, but uh, the unknown is frightening here. What is your biggest concern? I, I don't believe that uh, any of us truly believe that the number will settle out at 50. Uh, when we see that we still have 2,500 or so missing persons, clearly the difference between 50 and 2,500 uh, that number is going to climb somewhere significantly. In the meantime, we continue to care for those people that have been seriously traumatized, who have lost loved ones, who are anxious, uh, wondering every day if they will ever see their mother, their father, their children. And uh, this is a, a, a particularly difficult thing for people who have lost their homes, their possessions, and to make matters worse, uh, possibly uh, somebody near and dear to them. Uh, that is obviously irreplaceable. Uh, that's why we were just testing uh, America's uh, government, the administration here in terms of uh, giving TPS temporary protected status to Bahamians and what the uh, rules are and whether they're being relaxed or made more strict in light of what our president said. We know the need is great. We know everybody has to pitch in and we know that's not going to end anytime soon. Dr. Dwayne Sands, when you need information to get out, when you have specific needs that you would like addressed by the larger community just off your shores, please know that you have a friend in us here. Thank you so much. I must say that there have been many international partners who have gone above and beyond. But if I would be so bold as to single out any individual ally or partner, the United States has been amazing. Good. That is good to hear. And hopefully there's more to come. Minister, be well. Thank you. Good night. All right. Now, one of the people who is certainly a hero on the ground in these situations is legendary chef Jose Andres. He's been on the ground fighting for Bahamians since Dorian came roaring in. Do you remember this video of him? He is the real deal. What is he seeing? What is the need? Next with the great chef. The U.S. government is ramping up its aid to the Bahamas. You just heard the Minister of Health saying that the help from the United States has been very, very good. Four million dollars announced 
today. That brings total U.S. assistance to more than $10 million. Others, like Chef Jose Andres, are taking a personal approach. He does what he does best. He fills stomachs. He's got close to 10 thousand meals a day going. So far, his World Food Kitchen has delivered over 150,000 fresh meals across three islands, New Providence, Abaco, and Grand Bahama. The chef joins us now with an update from the ground. It is great to see you, my friend. As always, uh, I seem to find you in the hardest bitten places even more than I am there these days. What is it like on the ground for you and your team? Well, uh, Every day is a new day. I think uh, today we see that finally we have a great rhythm. Um, today, like yesterday, we deliver 30,000 meals, uh, 20,000 in Grand Bahama, the rest between um, here in Providence and um, Abaco. So, you know, the situation, I would say, at least is under control but there's so many things that have to happen still today and going forward. How much fear is there about the unknown? How many of the missing aren't missing, they're gone, and how long it will take, and if people are trapped, and now the United States may be changing the rules for people to come here uh, while things get better. What's the anxiety on the ground about all that? Well, still we have uh, many uh, rescue teams many from the states i know is one from fairfax virginia another one from washington state that they still they are doing a lot of uh, search search for those 2500 unaccounted uh, people uh, let's hope that the number doesn't increase uh, much more and that hopefully those 2500 just happens that they are people that they are in shelters or they are in the homes of family members. But I wanna tell you one thing because this is very important to understand. We're talking about 20,000 people in Abaco, around 70,000 people in Bahama. We're talking that almost 20% of the population of an entire country has been hit by this hurricane. Many has lost their homes, family members. This is Unbelievable. Imagine that in the United States, 20% of our population will lose their homes and they will show up one morning without water, without electricity, without cell signal. Wow, this is total chaos. With that, I want to say that I do believe that this country, that this is a small country in size, but very big country in heart, actually has done a fairly good job in handling this situation. So I want the world to know that yes, sometimes in these situations you began hearing criticisms. I think that if anything, the prime minister and the entire Bahamian government supported by the international organizations, they've done a fairly good job. What do you think? That's good to know. And what do you think uh, people should do who want to help? Listen, um, as, for example, we keep doing food and we're helping the government use making sure that that's not a problem. Other people, USAID, Shoab, United Nations, they're also trying to help with water, with also food in some parts. But we've been taking um, kind of this leadership. Now you're at home and you are watching. What can you do? Listen, sometimes we want to start sending things and we send so many things that sometimes this creates a bigger problem than a solution. 
We need to make sure that if anything, even if you give a dollar, a dollar helps. There's many organizations that you can go to the webpage of the Bahamian government and you will see how you can be supported. But it's a great way to support in a passive way. You are planning your vacation. You know where you should be coming. You should be coming to Bahamas. It's plenty of islands. This, the big one, Providence, is perfect. Many other little islands are ready to welcome you. You want to help the country. You want to help the people. Show up as a tourist. And this is an amazing way to be helping this country move forward into their reconstruction. That's a great idea. Chef, when you come back, assuming you're not consumed by the rest of the storm season, we'll pick a weekend. My family, your family will go away. It's on me. We'll go to the Bahamas. All right. Stay safe and stay well. Thank you. Take care. All right. I'm going to come back to the Bahamas in a bit, but there's another hurricane catastrophe that we just can't forget because things there are not back to anything near normal. NBA All-Star Carmelo Anthony is here to talk about why he had to find more ways to help rebuild Puerto Rico and why it's so special for him. Next. All right, welcome back to our special report. A lot of attention on the Bahamas, and rightly so, but don't forget Puerto Rico. They're still dealing with the destruction and heartache caused by Hurricane Maria. So we brought in Carmelo Anthony. You know him, the NBA All-Star. And he's using his foundation to bring basketball courts to the people, but also education, meals, and much more because he's seen the need expand. We spoke to him in a candid interview about his connection to the island. Carmelo Anthony, thank you so much for taking the opportunity. Thanks for having me. Respect you as an athlete. Respect you even more as someone who's a citizen trying to give back. Tell people about your connection to Puerto Rico. I'm half Puerto Rican. Um, My dad was Puerto Rican. Um, And I I just found my connection probably three years into my NBA career. Um, I started going back to the island. I started getting uh, in tune back to my roots and my family. And, and then I started my uh, my foundation down there, the Carmelo Anthony Foundation. We started uh, doing a very mellow weekend now and then that includes golf and just, you know, just a really, really good weekend. Uh, then we started donating basketball courts. And uh, my first court was in La Perla down there. And What do you think the courts mean to the communities? It's a connection, right? I, I think sports brings a lot of different things, a lot of different people together. Um, when I did it, I didn't know what to expect. Like, I just wanted to go back into that particular neighborhood, uh, being one of the roughest neighborhoods down there on the island, and give back. Uh, and then we have years later now, I still have people that, to this day, uh, come back to me and say, thank you. You do at least a court every year, mm-hmm. uh, and you've been seeing that grow. Then Maria happens, Yes. and you decide you have to get more involved. Why and what? We sent planes down there. We, we teamed up with UNICEF and Feed the Children. Um, you know, basketball courts, uh, hygiene kits. Like we, we was my team was on the on the ground and in the trenches doing the whole, uh, you know, after the hurricane and the post hurricane, and we just wanted to give back. Like I just felt like something in my heart, my soul, that I had to do something. Like and I it was to. a weird situation because people were talking about Puerto Rico like it was a different country. Yeah, I mean, it's, Them, we didn't even place, feel a part that of island. it. We didn't even feel a part of it, right? And just to see the images that was going on uh, from afar, uh, the way that the island was being disrespected, the way that Puerto Ricans was being disrespected, I think it was just something that, like, for me as an individual, like, I felt like I had to do that, do something that during that time. But also, it brought me closer to 
you know, my, my Puerto Rican roots. What do you want people to know about how great the need still is there? We need everything, right? It's, I mean, we all know the, you know, the financial crisis down there, that, you know, the economy. We know that. Um, we know the Hurricane Maria put us back years and years and years. But we also see what's going on from a, you know, government standpoint and politics and things like that. So it's, we're just in a very, very tough situation right now in a tough moment and a tough environment. But as all Puerto Ricans, like, we come together, we stay strong, we keep our head up. I mean, look, with Rosselló, you know, the uh, governor who was down Absolutely. There, um, the people went out in the streets, yeah. demanded he leave. Yeah. Because they felt he didn't represent the standard of what they wanted anymore. Absolutely. You're not seeing that in the continental United no, you're not. States. What did that speak to for you? It, how, how strong we were, right, as, 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 as people, as a unit, as an island, uh, as Puerto Ricans, right? It's, it's a certain pride that we had. And just seeing those images of the people in the streets... Right. And what they stand for. I have family like my sister was down there, like leading the protests. like it was it was it was tough, man. It was, but it was also great to see, you know, the, the island come together like that. So you have two different big influences in your life where the people there are all about the passion of the place. you got Puerto Rico. And you got Baltimore. Yeah. You know, of course, the president's involved in both of these yes, situations. Of He's involved in everything these days. <laughs> but what he said about Puerto Rico, you saw how they took it. What he said about Baltimore, tell people about what it's like to be from Baltimore and to hear your place called. You, you could see rats running all over everybody. Yeah. You call it that that's all it is. Yeah. What does it, that mean? It's, I see that. Right. And I saw that. Like, I, I grew up in that. Right. And, but it's something that we 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 trying to fix. Right. We we, we want a better Baltimore. Right. So for somebody of that stature to call a place like Baltimore that has so much heart and soul and, and culture and creativity just call it rat infested. Like that right there was just that was, that was a stab in our heart. And Baltimore is a place that's ready to explode, right? And we, we saw what what happened with the Freddie Gray, you know, tragedy. Now we seeing Baltimore bubbling again. And at the end of the day, we don't want that to happen. But like you said, you look at what's what's happening in Puerto Rico. Everybody's coming together. Baltimore is a place where you keep pushing us. You keep pushing us. You keep pushing us. People are going to come together, and then hopefully it's for the right reason, but you just don't know what's going to happen. You're not an easily intimidated person. No. But you got to pick your spots. You can put your money where your mouth is all day long. You do that brilliantly. You did it in Baltimore. You did it early. You do it in Puerto Rico. But now you see things around you. You see people in positions of leadership. You don't need them, mm -hmm. but you don't like what they're saying or you don't like how it's going. How do you figure out? Here's what I'm going to speak about. I'm going to say something about this or I'm not going to get into it because I got to worry about my brand. I got to worry about me being a ball player first yeah. or whatever. How do you figure out what to say when you don't like what power is doing? I just think I, I think I'm past. Uh, I, I want to protect myself and protect my brand, but I think I'm past. Oh, I can't say this because of my brand. Like I, I, got, I have to talk about what I feel, uh, what's near and dear to me, uh, my connectivity to my people. Uh, which is Baltimore, which is Puerto Rico, which is, you know, New York. When people say, shut up and dribble, as we heard said about that, LeBron James. That just makes us, that makes us come together and that makes us want to say something even more, right? Because we have a voice. We have a major, major voice in a lot of different genres that's out there on a lot of different topics. So I'm going to continue using my voice. I don't think, I don't think anybody is going to stop me from doing that. Uh, but I'm, I want to use my voice and steer things into the right direction, not just to use my voice just because I have one. I remember Harry Belafonte said to me once, before they see what's in my pocket, they always see what's on my skin. 1,000%. And that that's who I am in this country. 1,000%. And I got to deal with that. Absolutely. Well, listen, 
What I see is what you're doing. Thank you. Forget about the court. I didn't even need to talk about it. What you're doing for people who need help. Thank you. That's everything. I appreciate it. Makes you an all star any way you look at it. My God. Thank you. Carmelo Anthony. Thank you. I appreciate it. All right. So that's just some of what's happening with Americans helping Americans through one disaster. Now we need to help our neighbors in the Bahamas. That's obvious. I'm going to show you who's already jumping in and how you can have their backs next. You know we can't just be about the problem in the Bahamas. We have to promote solutions. Uh, That's where Jake Wood comes in. He leads Team Rubicon. They are a wonderful nonprofit made up of veterans. They've been on the ground in the disaster zone for a week. They do this all over the world. They are that first wave medical um, working to stop disease, clean debris, um, infrastructure for communications, chainsaws, roofs. The lifts goes on. They they have so many skills. So you want to help Team Rubicon. Chef Andres raising money for Team Rubicon, and you can help him with money. It's one of the 20 charities working on Dorian that you can find on the CNN Impact Your World page. How do you get there? CNN.com slash impact. Okay, thank you for being part of the solution. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.